0: This week, we speak with Sandy Carielli from Forrester Research. In the new segment, some SDKs siphon social data. Browsers continue to balance privacy and precision. We return to SSRF and more. Stay tuned for Application Security
1: Weekly. This is a Security Weekly production. Make sure your team is prepared to fight off the latest cybersecurity threat. IT Pro TV is the resource to keep you and your IT team skills up to date. You can stream IT Pro TV courses live and on demand, so there's no need to send staff to offsite training. Team subscriptions include Pro Portal so managers have full control over your team's training schedule. Go to itpro.tv/asw and use the code ASW30 to try it free for 7 days and receive 30% off your monthly membership. Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies. Protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week, Signal Sciences' next-gen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences' patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences. Demand more from your WAF. Learn more at Signalsciences.com forward slash PSW.
0: Welcome to Application Security Weekly. This is episode 87, recorded December 2nd, 2019. I'm your host, Mike Shima, and I'm here with Matt Alderman. Happy Cyber Monday.
2: Hey, happy Cyber Monday (laughs) and credit card fraud alert day. (laughs) (laughs) I'm two for two already this morning. That's why I said it, so.
0: Sounds good. I guess we can say they're both happy and cross our fingers, we'll see. <laughs> um, we do need everyone to register for our upcoming webcast with Steve Lobenstein of Core Security by going to securityweekly.com, click the webcast dropdown and select registration. If you have missed any of our previously recorded webcasts, you can find our on-demand library by selecting on-demand from the webcast dropdown. If you attend any of our webcasts, you will receive one CPE credit per webcast. We're currently running our annual listener feedback survey. Please visit securityweekly.com, click the survey tab, and select 2019 listener survey to to submit your responses. Our guest today is Sandy Carielli. She's a Principal Analyst at Forrester, advising security and risk professionals on application security, with a particular emphasis on the collaboration among security and risk, application development, operations, and business teams. Her research covers topics such as proactive security design, security testing in the software delivery lifecycle, protection of applications in production environments, and remediation of hardware and software flaws. Sandy has over 15 years of experience in the security industry, working in software engineering, consulting, product management, and technology strategy roles. Her most recent experience was at Entrust DataCard, where she guided the organization's technology strategy and researched the impact of emerging technologies on the business. Prior to that, Sandy was director of product management at RSA, where she was responsible for the secure ID and data protection portfolio. Sandy spent four years as a consultant at At Stake, where she conducted application architecture assessments, penetration tests, and code reviews. Sandy began her career as a software engineer at BBN Technologies and Cybertrust Solutions. She's the co-author of the Industrial Internet Consortium's IoT Security Maturity Model and has spoken at RSA Conference, Source Boston, ISASA International, and many other regional security events. And with that, I want to welcome you, Sandy. Hello, and thank you for joining us.
3: Hello, Mike, and uh, happy Cyber Monday indeed. This is a happy timely Cyber conversation, Monday. I think.
0: It is, because what we're going to dive into, even though we've gotten out of November 2019, which I particularly like because that was the uh, month of Blade Runner and Replicants, we haven't left bots behind us because, um, as both you and Matt have been alluding to, Cyber Monday is uh, so named because everyone is spending their time at work uh, and their high-speed data connections um, looking for deals to online for online shopping but they're not the only ones interacting with e-commerce because that's where the bots are. So Sandy, um, with a little bit of that introduction, let's talk about bots and what your recent research has been looking at.
3: So we have been looking at bot management platforms and looking at how they have grown and how they've emerged. You know, a few years ago, we mostly would look at web application firewalls for protection but over the past few years i think people have realized wafs are not enough that you know a a bot whether it's good or malicious is going to it's going to, to take advantage and take approaches that a waf is not going to catch And so OAF might detect some things, but it's not going to be able to stop many of the fraudulent attacks. It's not going to prevent the increase in traffic. And a lot of the fraud that you're seeing, particularly around something like Cyber Monday, it could include things like hoarding uh, in shopping carts so that you can't get that great deal that's only available for 30 minutes, or it could involve ticketing, you know, trying to buy up all of the tickets to a limited show and then reselling them or scalping them. It could include credential stuffing—you know, buying a bunch of credentials off of the dark web and seeing which ones work on another site. Those are some common bot applications and use cases. But organizations are finding that you know their traditional application security protections in production aren't enough, and they're moving much more into the bot management uh, space and really looking at what's out there. And you're seeing the real explosion of management companies even in the last 18 months in the process right now of revising the uh, new tech on bot management. And what's really amazing is just the number of companies, both startups and more mature existing organizations that have really invested in this space. You know, two years ago, we had maybe 15 to 20 companies in total, and this year we had to cap it at 40 it's really been a really exploding space. So Sandy, you, you, you talk about aspect. I mean, let,
2: let's get into some yep. nuances here for a second, because I think this is a really interesting space, right? We think of all traffic the same on the internet, but it's not, <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> right? Um, no. I, I think stats I've seen are things like half of all traffic on the internet is bots and one third of all internet traffic is malicious bot traffic. I mean, are those roughly right numbers from the amount of bot traffic that's actually out on the internet.
3: You know, Matt, the stats I've seen vary, but the latest ones I've seen have a little under 40% of all internet traffic is bots and over half of that is malicious bots. The good traffic includes things like, you know, Google and and web crawlers and partner bots that you don't want to block. You Often you rely on and you need those bots, but then there are all of the malicious ones as well.
2: And so how do you, so I think this is one of the big challenges, right? In it, There's a couple things. The the WAFs may not be able to discern good from bad traffic, right? Bot right. traffic or or even traffic from bot traffic. So, so we may want to break that down a, a second, but then- The the bigger challenge is if you can discern what is bot traffic, then you have to figure out what is good versus bad bot traffic. And and that requires a level of sophistication that I think these platforms have that maybe the WAFs themselves didn't have. Is that true?
3: There's absolutely that. There's also, you think about WAFs, they're primarily, they were developed for OWASP top 10. So if you're using bots in order to crawl a site and search for vulnerabilities that you can exploit later, A WAF may catch some of that, but bots used for fraud are often attempting something that might look like a legitimate transaction. You know, they're attempting to log in or they're attempting to try to pay with a gift card. And maybe the bot is just increasing the numbers on the gift card every time, hoping to find one that's open and available, but it doesn't necessarily get detected as an application attack in the same way. So a lot of that fraudulent activity isn't going to be caught by a WAF. That's that's sort of the distinction I think you're we're looking at, Matt.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And then from a good versus bad, that mm-hmm. requires some understanding of how the application's supposed to work, what the bot's trying to do, and then I then somehow put some behavior analytics around it to say that looks that that's good versus that's bad. That that that's an interesting challenge too
3: it is you know there are certain bots that we sort of we know the signatures of and we can whitelist we know what to expect with google crawlers for example we know what that looks like but we also know with that that maybe we don't always want it going at the same rate on cyber monday for example your priority if you're an e-commerce site is you want to get customers in and you want them to be able to buy so maybe you need to slow down the traffic, even of some of your good or partner bots, in favor of letting more humans in. So that's the other element of it. You can know which, which bots are good bots, but you don't always want them at the same rate.
0: That's pretty interesting too, because you've been, as as you're saying, that you know, WAFs are sort of the focus on the OWASP top ten. I, I I was about to say old school type of attacks. These attacks still exist today, so they're not necessarily <laughs> right. old school. But um, the techniques, the countermeasures are are very simple in the sense you were describing crawl the website, look for those vulnerabilities, attempt to exploit them. As you're describing here, a lot of these types of fraud scenarios, you've basically described interacting with an application in a legitimate manner. So one of the things I also imagine, too, is that countering these bots probably also cannot just be, let's block the IP address and we've solved the problem. What have been some other ways that you've seen a lot of these platforms and these countermeasures try to work against the bots to impact them from, you know, basically to counter them?
3: You know, the top bot management platforms, the detection is incredibly sophisticated. Some of them are using hundreds or even thousands of different signals tied to the requester transaction in order to help identify, is this a bot or is this a human? And so there's that element. Some of the some of the bot management platforms have some pretty detailed machine learning um, around behavioral analysis, and really tying that all together to not only search for some of the basic bots, which are easier to find, but also search for more sophisticated bots that act more like humans, and that's, that's, those are the more challenging ones. It's sometimes easier to find bots that well behave like bots, but not every bot behaves like a bot, or like what we think a bot acts like. So that's that's right. the other element of it.
0: But hopefully, that doesn't mean that all these detection mechanisms are throwing up captures because every once in a while, <laughs> a capture gets in front of a human. So, are, are, is basically our future going to be deciphering all of these letters and numbers, or figuring out is this a streetlight, or are these three pixels? <laughs> in this one box a streetlight or is there is there a little bit of better hope for us humans
3: you know i saw uh, something on twitter over the weekend someone was uh faced with a captcha in another language um <laughs> so how hopeless is that no um the goal with bot management solutions is to have a degree of accuracy and small enough number of false positives that they are not throwing up challenges in CAPTCHAs. And even if they do need to do an occasional challenge, it could be a JavaScript challenge to the browser that is completely invisible to the user. Or if you need something more human, a couple of organizations, a couple of vendors have started to create different types of CAPTCHAs that are a little more usable and aren't relying on you to figure out, what does a taxi look like? Is this a traffic light? Is this little corner here of a traffic light in this in this square actually count as a traffic light? You know, I hate those, you hate those, everybody hates those, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, that yeah, or it, the letters and the numbers that are so obscured. That oh my God, even,
3: yeah. It, I, it's like,
2: really, it looks like a J or it looks like a seven or a what? It, and then there, it's like, no, it's yeah. invalid. And then you're doing it again. And some of these things are so... Distorted that even a real human can't figure them out.
3: Yeah, the interesting thing with bot management um, is that they really have extended into all sorts of different types of responses. You know, the most the most basic ones it might be block and allow and throw out a captcha, but the ones that have really advanced and are a little more innovative aren't just doing that. They're sending uh, suspected bots over to honeypots or they're blackholing them, leaving the request open but not sending any data so that you're basically costing the attacker a lot of money with these open connections that never get resolved. Or they're serving up fake data that's useless for the attacker. In a lot of cases, the goal of bot management companies is actually to increase the cost and the economic impact for the attacker so that the value of a bot attack isn't as high and it's not as valuable for a malicious attacker to go with bots and that's really the hope if you actually make it economically infeasible or not viable they'll go in another direction
2: yeah and my guess is the market where we stand with bots is so ripe that it's really it's low-hanging fruit at this point for for these bots to actually work they're obviously working uh, and we've seen this with other attacks before, Sandy. I mean, you, you, we can track yeah. all different types of attacks, right? At a certain point, you want to put enough safeguards in place that makes it that much more challenging and that much more right. expensive to build a bot that looks like a human that those those types of attacks stop. Where are we on that spectrum right now?
3: <laughs> Not there yet, but better than we were a year ago. Um, I think we've had a number of successes in the industry. Vendors that have successfully stopped large-scale bot attacks, um, and in some cases, even managed to uh, help bring up charges against some of the perpetrators. So there's definitely more attention on it from that standpoint. There's still a ton of fraud that's going on. You know, there's still a ton of people that are able to, you know, hoard. Um, high-end or specialist merchandise, you know, or limited-time stuff. Again, you know, this is the day where everybody has the, you know, one-hour flash sales of the specialty item that you can only get during that time. And if a bot is able to successfully hoard a lot of that, that's a terrible customer experience for all of your real customers who really wanted that item, right? Um, so what I'd say is that we've definitely advanced, but there's still quite a ways to go, Um it's definitely an emerging, um, it's an emerging industry and emerging platform bot management. Um, so it, we're getting there.
2: Now from an adoption perspective, I mean, are we only seeing adoption at the large kind of online folks right now? or, or are these technologies cost effective enough, easy enough to deploy where we can actually go downstream? or are we just still talking cream of the crop? kind of online retailers that can afford and implement these types of solutions?
3: I think you're seeing it go downstream too, Matt. Um, It's interesting because bot management itself started from a number of different areas. There was a lot initially in the marketing fraud and the ad fraud, identifying bots that were making your advertising budget pretty useless. You know, we're, we're clicking on a bunch of things and not really giving you value for for your ad budget um, or focused on marketing fraud. And a lot of them have evolved into covering things like credential stuffing and web scraping for purposes of identifying vulnerabilities and things like that. So the, the evolution of where bot management has come from varies. The other thing that we're seeing a lot of is web application firewall vendors are realizing that they alone aren't the right answer to address bots. And they are either adding bot management to their solution or they're acquiring bot management companies. We've seen a couple of large acquisitions in the last year um, where good-sized uh, WAF vendors have acquired bot management or they have uh, added bot management to their platforms.
2: Yeah, I mean, we've always known that web application firewalls had a specific purpose, but not they couldn't do some of the more advanced stuff. And, you know, with moving to the cloud and a lot of the things that have been going on with with the move of the application, I think a lot yeah. of these WAF vendors have had to try to figure out how to reinvent themselves. This is one area where I think the legacy WAF vendors realized this was a way to potentially reinvent themselves a bit here, which is good. We've seen other WAF vendors go a little deeper into kind of the runtime application uh, self-protection stuff, separate segment we should do at some point with you on, <laughs> yeah. on a deeper dive into the space. But is is that where, what you're kind of seeing is each, each WAF vendor is kind of trying to figure out where their, where their next uh, set of innovations come from? And this is obviously one that's leading the pack right now.
3: You know, I'm not sure that it's necessarily trying to figure it out, but I do think that a lot of the WAF vendors... That we are speaking to are evolving and expanding their offerings and realizing that they want to offer a more complete application security solution. And it may involve bot management. And as you said, it may involve RASP. It may involve uh, client side uh, protections, code protections, things like that. Um, But there's definitely, there is definitely a bit of a, consolidation, I would say. Not that they, it's becoming, you know, a single platform immediately, but there's definitely a lot of acquisition and sort of aligned products that are being tied in.
2: Yeah, I mean this this is where things get interesting, right? You said 15 to 20 a year ago, you had to cap it at 40. So you're seeing a lot of growth, a lot of investment in bot management. Yes. But here's the reality on the other side. If this is just a feature, then it gets consolidated into a larger application security portfolio. You look at how many of those are out there. There's a limited number from a consolidation perspective, and we started to see this in the end endpoint space with some of the recent activity over the last year or so in endpoint. I, I think at some point we'll probably see the same thing for bot management. I don't know that it's taken the same. Um, I don't know if it's at the same level as endpoint right this second, but. There could be some interesting consolidation going forward just because uh, why do you need 40, 50, 60 bot management vendors if there's only, you know, 20, 30 web app security companies?
3: You know, it's interesting. Um, Mike, you had asked me about what was responsible for the explosion of bot management vendors over the last year, you know, from 15-ish to over 40. And... One of the things that happened is a couple of the big folks got bought. And so if you're starting a security company and you see, you know, a couple of leading bot management vendors get purchased for big bucks, well, that makes it a pretty attractive market to get into. So I think, you know, you see the amount of money, you see the investment. There's a huge jump in investment in bot management. And it's not all startups. I mean, that's that's a thing to point out. A lot of the companies getting involved in bot management are pretty large-scale established vendors in the cloud space already. They're either WAF vendors or they're CDN vendors or they're just cloud-adjacent cloud in some way, and they're adding this into their portfolio.
2: Interesting. But I do think, the- to
3: your point, yeah. that the, I, I would not be surprised to see more acquisitions. Yeah. And so I'm
2: curious, are, do we also see it in the DDoS guys? Are the DDoS vendors also looking at this bot traffic and some of this bot management as a way to help in DDoS? Because you mentioned the top two, I think WAFs and CDNs, but the other one could be the DDoS guys. Are we seeing that same, uh, some of those capabilities coming into the DDoS vendors as well?
3: You know, I don't spend as much time with the DDoS vendors, so I probably can't say. Um, it. It hasn't come up in my conversations, but I haven't been... I haven't dove in as much there. It's mostly it's mostly come from the waf vendors at this point, but keep in mind some of the waf vendors also have a ddos component. So. Yeah.
2: yeah. Sorry Mike, I, can... I was I was kind of consuming
0: <laughs> sandy's time <laughs> no this is great co- yeah this is a great conversation and I, I was curious to take this in a um n- now to go on a, a slightly different path because we're talking about yep. I and mean, sandy you're describing you know uh, several dozen you know having to cap this review at, up, up to 40 I'm also curious to from th- think of this from the practitioner from the, the the application owner perspective yeah are there certain things that um that are important to look out for whether it is in the deployment model whether it's more like the the WAF or the the fronting the web application um and you know they're terminating the the TLS connection and inspecting traffic or is it more or are there aspects of dropping in a javascript shim on the client site to do the detection that way so my question more is do you see large hurdles or things that are difficult still for application owners to deploy these types of countermeasures Um, And and what can they look out for in terms of getting the most out of one of these platforms?
3: So let's talk, Mike, about a couple of questions to ask. And I want to unpack a couple of things you said there. Uh, You talked about SSL termination. And one of the things that we do look at sometimes is just, you know, how, how does this all need to be deployed and put together? Reality, you probably want, you don't want to be, you know, decrypting and then encrypting and then decrypting and encrypting again. So you probably need your bot management, you know, right before your WAF or something like that in order to help with performance. Um, There was another part of the question. Oh, yeah. Um, In terms of things to look out for, understanding where your traffic is coming from and making sure that your bot management uh, solution supports not just web traffic, but say API traffic and mobile traffic and all of those things, if you have an application that requires all of that, you want to make sure that you're able to address all of that. You also want to understand what types of detections are in place and what the numbers of false positives are so that you know know, what you're dealing with there. Not everybody has the same level of detection or includes the same signals. And then understanding the different options for responding to an attack. Because there's definitely a lot of variation in terms of the degree of responses available and how much you know, the availability and how you can set up those rules and what your options are. So knowing how granular and how many different options you want in your responses is going to be something that's going to come up quite a bit, I think, when you're selecting a bot management vendor.
2: Yeah, you brought Mm. up a really good point on the mobile side, right? If we think about the move to mobile transactions, it's potentially an API gateway uh, Mm -hmm. that the mobile app is communicating to to gain access, right? And so your bot management solution may be sitting in front of that API gateway, just like it might be sitting in front of your web app firewall for for other traffic, right? And so I think you brought up some really interesting architectural things to think about is, depending on how that traffic's coming in do the solutions support these different models because the last thing you want probably is two or three different bot management solutions
3: right i mean if you're getting a lot of mobile traffic or you're relying on api traffic for a number of your applications whether it's api through your web app or just apis directly from other systems you know if you're not if you're not looking at that and looking for bots in that traffic you're missing a whole chunk of the traffic that's coming into your into your application so you need to make sure that your solution supports all of the traffic that you rely on absolutely and yes to your point architecting this becomes a pretty big big deal you probably do have your bot management and your API gateway and your waf back to back to back right yeah
2: interesting yeah, which is more of a DevOps concern when it comes to deploying now aspects of the infrastructure and how those security
0: components get kind of weaved into that deployment model. Yeah, I'm curious too if you've if you've seen any of the applications themselves start to build their um, own countermeasures or their own um, you know their own ways of raising the economics of the, the 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 attackers cost for this. And some of the ways I'm thinking of is. Um, Having, you know, a lot of these, you know, going through deals, obtaining details can be predicated on actually having an authenticated experience and on mobile devices, I'm going to imagine or at least make a guess that maybe there's a little bit easier attestation that you have a human on this device and you can pull some secrets or store some secrets into one of their secure enclaves that you can't really do in a browser. So um, I'm just kind of a bit bit of a more open question and almost a a whiteboarding design kind of question. If you see mobile or the web, if you see these paths diverging where, web maybe becomes remains more prevalent with bot traffic and and mobile and apis have some actual possibly some architectural capabilities that can maybe minimize some of this or it really is a um call it the cat and mouse game of for every countermeasure there's something that comes on top where rather than bots throwing in teams of mechanical turks um you know for um low cost
3: you know i haven't seen anything like that yet mike um Not to say that we wouldn't necessarily, but right now it really is, you know, attackers leveraging whatever tools are at their disposal. And, you know, if API traffic or mobile traffic isn't getting checked or validated at the same rate as web traffic, that would be a problem. So, yeah, I don't necessarily see... A lot of mobile or API specific solutions. I think there's one vendor that we spoke to that was focused on mobile fraud, but most of them are, you know, started with web and then have added in API and mobile support.
0: Oh, that's interesting. And I guess, too, let me s- switch back and talk a little bit just about the, the nature of these attacks, because you'd mentioned credential stuffing. And yep. um, in the news just recently, there was um, uh Disney Plus when it was launched, there was a yes. lot of news about that and whether it was a breach or whether it was just collected um, you know, basically breach data from other areas used for credential stuffing. So that was pretty topical here. Um, we're talking today on Cyber Monday, as we've mentioned, talking about like purchasing e-commerce or um, ticket sales, for example. Yep. I'm curious too. Are there other, you know, for other application owners out there that perhaps aren't specifically in an e-commerce? Um, I'm going to guess pretty much everyone has some type of login page, so credential stuffing right. is a you know pretty important. But are there what are there other types of fraud or other types of attacks that um, you also see other t- that that application owners should also be aware of? If they think that well, we don't have Cyber Monday deals, so we probably don't need to worry about bots.
3: So as you said, credential stuffing is a huge one, and I don't know none of us know exactly what happened with Disney Plus, but you can imagine. So many people reuse their passwords if you buy a bunch of stolen credentials from somewhere and try them on another site that that's probably you know you're probably going to have some percentage of hits on that right so there's that if you're not in e-commerce so you're probably not worried about checkout abuse and you're probably not worried about card fraud or ticketing you're still going to be worried about sort of general web recon you know finding vulnerabilities that you can take advantage of a little bit more later you might still be worried about ad fraud um, because pretty much everyone has some sort of advertising or marketing campaign that they're probably trying to make work and they want to make sure that they're actually getting value from that versus just having a bunch of bots click on their ads and use up their marketing budget nicely but not actually get a lot of value for it. Um, the other thing that's interesting, we've talked a little bit about good bots um, and you know Google's an example, but the other thing we're seeing is hedge funds. That are putting out good, essentially good bots to scrape information from various corporate websites in order to um, ascertain the value of the company and whether they should invest in it, and you know feed all of that information in. Um, you know that's an example where it's not a malicious bot, but you do want to make sure that you know, the information being scraped is correct and val- you know of value and isn't going to lead to somebody devaluing your firm or something like that. So that might be something to watch for. It's not necessarily a malicious spot, but it is something to know that, hey, the information that is on your site, you know, is being used in various ways and bots are leveraging that as well.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it's a good point to say that there are, you know, as we say, good good bots, bad bots out there as yes. well. And, um, yeah, we, and I think you made also an important distinction at, at the beginning about distinguishing between them and then deciding what action to take. Whether it is, in this case, making sure that data is correct or data is being presented well or black holing them or dropping them, uh, you know, dropping the malicious bots into areas that is just going to r- raise that attacker cost. Right. So that's a you know, need.
3: Take your malicious bots, black hole them, feed them fake data, make it costly and inconvenient for them. Partner bots and good bots, most of the time you want to let in, but maybe you need to throttle them every so often. Maybe on Cyber Monday you want to throttle them back a little bit. You still want to let them in, but you want to let them in a little bit slower because your priority is humans at that point. Whereas maybe, you know, two weeks ago, you really didn't care as much. So Understanding your business cycles to be able to then put in place rules for even how good bots are handled is going to be really important.
0: That's cool. And so, um, as I want to ask too, um, looking looking ahead, um, Sandy, you've been doing quite a bit of research. You've been speaking a lot of conferences. Um, is there anything upcoming that you wanted to to highlight? Um, that we can look for for more of your work.
3: So, as I mentioned, um, we are currently working on and finalizing the new tech on bot management that's going to um, really give you a survey of the bot management space and key players in it and sort of where they fall in different levels of feature um, focus among uh, different segments. And that's definitely something to watch out for. Also, uh, early next year, are going to be working on a general sort of state of application security talking about how. Uh, different product segments are being adopted within the market. And it'll be interesting to go through you know, where, where organizations are picking up application security tooling and at what part in the development and deployment process, and if that's evolving, um, and if we are, as they say, shifting left. Yeah, that
0: That'll sounds be- like we're going to have to have you back for that topic. <laughs> that sounds really interesting, for sure.
3: It'll be a fun conversation. We'll definitely talk about that one
0: excellent cool well i want to say thank you sandy for joining us this has been a great conversation
3: well thanks for having me mike Uh, thanks for uh, having me matt good talking to you both
0: cool and yes and thank you matt as well and um thanks everyone for listening and for those of you who are bots um and watching old reruns of Battlestar galactica hopefully this helps uh, provide some additional entertainment for
1: you and thanks to everyone else for joining we're going to take a break and we'll be back with news of the week Synopsis is the leader in application security testing. With 84% of cyber attacks targeting the application layer, securing your software is more challenging than ever. Modern software development and deployment paradigms require security testing solutions that are automated, accurate, and integrate into your DevOps workflow. Synopsys enables DevSecOps with a portfolio of industry-leading tools, including Coverity, Black Duck, and Seeker, to help you build secure, high-quality software faster. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Synopsys to learn more. Sysdig is the first cloud-native visibility and security platform that eliminates the need for standalone tools like container security and monitoring. Using Sysdig's unique data approach, enterprises can solve a variety of visibility and security issues at massive enterprise scale for multi- and hybrid cloud environments. Sysdig will enable your organization to scan and block vulnerable images and enforce best practices pre-production, block threats, enforce compliance and monitor application performance, proactively alert on incidents, reduce MTTR with forensics, and capture detailed audit records. All from a single unified platform. Accelerate your transition to containers and then have confidence in your ongoing operations using Sysdig. To learn more, visit securityweekly.com forward slash Sysdig. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host,
0: Mike Shima, joined by Matt Alderman. Mark your calendars for our Security Weekly Holiday Extravaganza. On December 19th, Security Weekly will be live streaming five one-hour panel discussions with some of the most knowledgeable professionals in the industry. To round out the evening, Ed Scudis will be joining the Security Weekly hosts to give his annual announcement about the CounterHack Holiday Hack Challenge. You can view the live stream on our YouTube channel or by visiting securityweekly.com live. We hope to see you there. Attend RSA Conference 2020 from February 24th to 28th and join thousands of security professionals, forward-thinking innovators, and solution providers for five days of actionable learning, inspiring conversation, and breakthrough ideas. Register before January 24th and save $900 on a full conference pass. Save an extra $150 by going to securityweekly.com slash RSAC2020 and use our code to register. Well, Matt, we just had a great discussion about bots and bot platforms uh, for today being Cyber Monday. And um, in the news, we have some, uh, I guess, some news not so much about bots, but about humans doing bad things. Um, and in this case, it was some SDKs that were um, used in um, Facebook and Twitter apps that were siphoning data from social media profiles. And one of the reasons I've highlighted this is that we've talked before about um, the software supply chain, talking about the integrity of SDKs, making sure that you know, the code that you built is the binary you deploy and that it hasn't been tampered with. But that's also predicated on the idea that um, what you're deploying isn't malicious or perhaps to use a slightly you know, less loaded term. In, in a couple cases, it's not a, against a terms of service or it's not doing something, say, hinky with, with user data or unexpected um, with user data. And I think that's what this um, article is describing. These SDKs are more so falling into that category, which I thought was kind of interesting.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting uh, attack where they're leveraging the SDKs of some of these mobile marketing tools to actually pull uh, personal data out of these apps, which is you know it, it definitely uh, you know a, a privacy issue. But the way they're doing it, you know, if you there's a a, a statement in here from Mobirn, which is one of the two SDKs, saying, "Look, we're just providing the toolkit." what people do with it, it's not our, you know, our issue. Well, maybe. Um, and I think what I'm, I was trying to get to, Mike, and I couldn't really tell from this, is this um, overlap of some of these applications, right? It looked like these SDKs were able to gain some access in, into potentially some other uh, areas of the mobile device and, and the uh, maybe other applications themselves, which I can see definitely happening on the Android platform my guess is iOS has maybe a little more protections in place, but maybe these SDKs can bypass some of that, which creates a very interesting use case in the iOS uh, mobile system.
0: Yeah, and I think it's uh, I, I think your 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 suspicions are more right are, are right in the sense that this is much more of an Android ecosystem challenge because the the Android permissions model and the intents tend to be um, a lot less granular than than iOS and they int- they tend to be um, deploy you know the the permissions asked once upon install and it's usually that install is a massive um, permissions grab and so the app may be asking for permissions but that's because the app doesn't really need access to your camera but for whatever reason the SDK wanted access to the camera so that it could then get access to local storage or access to your pictures um, or access to other other types of permissions such as SMS things like that. Um. So, and, and I think the other thing you will just highlight of that that challenge of the Android ecosystem is that Android, to be fair, has done a really good job in their recent um, versions to kind of true up that parity um, with the granular permissions with iOS. Of course, the problem is that the iOS adoption rate for the latest version is really high. Like I think it's in in the nineties um, percentage. Whereas with Android. Um, it's, I, I'm trying to remember the numbers off the top of my head, but it's nowhere close to 90. I want to say it's even closer to something like 50 or 60% for the latest version. So even if Android is doing better, you still have all these older devices that don't have those protections available. And it's a lot easier to have those, call them data leaks or data grabs based on um, overly granted um, intents. Yeah, Apple's, Apple's um, benefit here is They control the
2: hardware and the software platform. And if they want you to upgrade, they're going to force you to upgrade or they're going to end the life of the hardware, which will force you to upgrade. (laughs) So they have a completely different way to pull that lever than Android does. Because again, the hardware ecosystem is so broad, they can't put the same restrictions on it because they don't own all the hardware devices. They only own a portion of of the, the ecosystem when it comes to the Android operating system running on these hardware platforms. So it's definitely more challenging there. And, you know, there is no evidence that the iOS, um, the Twitter iOS one had any um, malicious activity because, again, I think it's the permissioning system in iOS that actually prevents this from working in iOS where Android is
0: much more susceptible to this type of attack. Yeah, and I think that it's it's interesting also from kind of a user experience and a design perspective too. Is that um, you you could perhaps call it kind of nagware or nagging, but iOS puts a lot of these decisions more front and center about um, reminding users, hey, you granted access to GPS a while ago. Do you still want this app to have it? It's been is sitting in the background, you you know, accessing your location. Did you, it's, it, and it's both a, did you know this as well as, you know, you, you made this decision perhaps a month ago, do you still have, you know, would you still make that decision today? And I think that's a more interesting approach because it is, it allows people to change their mind. It adds context. And um, I, I'd also say it's, we can also talk about a little bit of the business aspect of, whether it is more of an app-driven or an ad-driven type of ecosystem that the business is also running on that causes these types of trade-offs between, um, in, in the decisions and the design. I thought this was also a nice kind of segue into the article about Firefox and Firefox getting tough on tracking tricks. And now I know we've talked about a lot of the browser privacy. Um, Chrome uh, just recently, I think, was one we talked about a few weeks ago and what Chrome is doing um, to basically uh, sandbox their their processes as well as make a lot of... Um, their uh, their APIs, web APIs, uh, less precise basically, and uh, we've talked about uh, Safari doing the same thing. And here, to be fair to Firefox, Firefox is also trying to do a lot as well. In this case, I don't know that there's necessarily too much new in this article, as much as the article does have a great list of um. Uh, basically side channels that exist in a browser. And the reason I wanted to highlight this was not necessarily to focus on browsers still, but also to talk a little bit more broadly about side channels and information leaks when you know we as application developers are building our own apps. Um, so, you know, we because there's a trade-off here in the sense of how precise data we are providing about a user and how that user can be uniquely identified. And just one quick example of that is saying, if we need GPS location coordinates, uh, Matt, if we say, if we can be very coarse and we can distinguish that you and I are in different states right now. So, you know, if we're down to one kilometer or even you know, 1,000 kilometer type of precision, that's going to be pretty easy way to distinguish us. Just to figure out that I'm in California, we don't need a latitude and longitude that's really precise because that type of precision then could start to distinguish me or use to track me um, as opposed to what the app might need or what the user might be expecting. So it's one of those areas I just want to, that can be turned into, I think, a threat modeling exercise to talk about, you're building an app, what data are you collecting, and do you need to be that precise and that specific about each of your users to accommodate particular workflows?
2: Yeah, it, this, this is an a interesting business discussion too for us at Security Weekly. And, and I've had to deal with this in the past with other companies, right? Marketing people like to use a lot of tracking cookies to figure out, have you been at my site before? What content have you touched, et cetera? So you have a lot of marketing systems out there. Um, that will cookie the user, track that user and the activity that they have. And they use this for lead scoring and all these other things. And, and look, marketing people have been doing this for years. They use this as a part of a nurturing co- campaign. I get it. And, and so we get a lot of sponsors, Mike, that come in. And they're like, yeah, we want to know what users are doing um, with Security Weekly. And I'm like, I, I don't know. I, here's what I do know. Right? I know if you hit a, a a URL and a landing page, I know if you get redirected to a landing page. But outside of that, we don't cookie our users, and I won't, uh, on our public website because it's, it's not what we were meant for, right? And so it's hard sometimes to educate people on why you don't do that because I don't want to collect this data. I don't want to be responsible for it in some respects, right? Because that's <laughs> a business decision we've made, but you have a lot of businesses <clears throat> that want this data. And the question is, how much data do you collect to what degree do you collect that data? And then if you do collect it, you're going to have to protect it because that's going to be the other thing that comes and whacks you later uh, when some of this data gets out. So we've made a decision not to do a lot of this stuff. And what you're seeing now is that the browsers are going to make it harder to do this in general anyways. So, you know, for me, it's, it's okay. I think this is a great thing, but I know a lot of companies will struggle Um, Going forward with more of these protections in place, but I think it's good for the user because I think privacy should rule in a lot of respects, and this
0: gives users the option to at least be as anonymous as possible. Yeah, that's really cool. Just to hear that thought process and what those decision points are, because um, you're very rightly point out. I skipped over those aspects of the business decisions, Um, because there's also as equally important as just what you're saying. If you don't collect it, then it's a lot easier to protect, and it's a lot, it's it's a lot less likely or completely unlikely to end up in that S3 bucket that's going to get misconfigured and open to to the internet. Um, So yeah, so that's a really interesting. you know, thought process to go through and a way to understand when is this useful and when is it necessary? And when is it just collecting the data because we've always collected this data in the past, but maybe it actually hasn't been as helpful as we thought for that matter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's certain data we have to
2: collect when people fill out a form or register for a webcast. I get it, but I'm not not tracking your, which podcasts are you downloading? Which articles are you reading? I, I know if you visit, I know if somebody visited the page, that's great. I, I don't know who you are, so consume as much as you want.
0: <laughs> consume as much and send us feedback. That's why we have those surveys, and um, you know that's why we love hearing from from listeners. I think, for, for from my perspective, that is a much richer type of interaction and much richer type of feedback as well, rather than just trying to uh, reverse engineer what particular geolocation or what particular time zone someone's sitting in. Yeah, a lot easier too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, now we're going to turn our sights onto things that are th- completely different. Um, and here is an article about decoding the modern enterprise software spaghetti. And this one kind of jumped out to me, not so much for the um, anything too specific within the article. I have to admit, um, other than it does talk about make some good points about the difficulty of like software composition analysis. What are the dependencies? You know, within your apps, some, some common themes we've talked about. But some of it does lead into another article as well, just about, we talk a lot on the podcast here about the cloud and what's cloud native and DevSecOps in the cloud, but not everyone is in the cloud. And I thought, you know, as we're also coming to the end of the year, one of those good things to to sit back and and make sure that we also appreciate, there's a lot of DevOps teams and developers out there working with legacy software and they may be working to migrate it, but that migration is tough, especially when it, you're dealing with spaghetti code and code that's not necessarily very well architected and hard to, or, nor easy to decompose. Um, so so this just was one of those reminders about it. And it does have a um, you know, some bullet points about a list to walk through about, trying to evaluate if you're going to refactor code and re-architect code how do you start to break that down into some non-technical decisions in in things like budget deadlines just the time it's going to take these are a lot of social and management decisions as well
2: yeah i mean we're actually going through this process ourselves paul and i were actually talking about it earlier this morning um because we're going to start look we've, we've been building our own software for years that does all of our publishing and notifications and email and it will do more um, to, to really help not only our, our listeners get the content they want effectively but the notifications for that content and a sponsor onboarding, and all the other things right but that means you take in what was a big piece of monolithic code and now we're starting to think about well wait a minute this is really a A bunch of things right it's it's a publishing engine it's a it's a social media notification engine it's an email it's a metrics tracking it's a scheduling system right one of these days we will bring Paul on to actually talk through our own experience of going through this process because you know you want to talk about spaghetti code we've had multiple developers over the year building aspects of this code Paul's had to clean up over the past number of months we have a new developer We start looking at the application. We're like, yes, we're going to start to break it up. So we're starting to architect. We're starting to lay out timelines and dependencies to do that. We'll actually have a really good model to share back with some people on kind of the process we went through to do this. Because to your point, this takes time. This is not something that happens overnight. If we want to talk about digital transformation and all the greatness, it takes time. And and there's going to be a lot of decision points we have to make. Um, over the next number of months to get us where we want to be to have an application that we think performs and provides the functionality that we want in the right architecture
0: so we can do all the really cool things around DevOps in the future too. I, I would love to have that conversation because one of the other things that um one of the other points in this article is also talking about just how many tools different organizations have just to literally do like asset management or co- code management uh, mm-hmm. like dependency trees um and that also speaks to you know one of the themes that that sandy was bringing up though talking about bot platforms that um there's so many out there you know she she was capping her her research review to to 40. Um so it's this idea that there's a lot of tools out there and a lot of people are using actually multiple tools but that also you know for as complex as your code may be now you have complexity of management and um more tools doesn't necessarily mean better unfortunately it may just mean that some are working a little bit better for this one particular scenario but not as good as the other tool in this scenario or for this particular use case or it doesn't connect well or the data isn't normalized as nicely Um, so yeah so just hearing some of um, Paul's well and to to be fair some of your um, struggles through this would be would be an interesting discussion to have from that people processes and tools um, component as well.
2: Yeah, because I really know the what the software what the requirements are, right? It's up to Paul and Marson to actually code it and, and <laughs> bring it all together. So, they'll they'll have a lot more insight on what my high-level requirements actually meant from a coding perspective.
0: <laughs> Don't worry, I won't start quizzing you on git commands. <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> um <clears throat> I'm going to, we've got um, s- some two articles under Food for Thought and kind of wanted to revisit SSRF. We talked about um, um, AWS just updated their uh, metadata service last week, and we talked about it. And we talked about the Capital One breach as well that was um, pointed to as an example of SSRF accessing a metadata service. And this particular article um. Uh, there were a couple, you know, it kind of just reinforces a little bit of that message. It it's pretty much summarizes what we know. Um, it, it also summarized a little bit of what we talked about in the sense of um, pointing out how, um, not Amazon, Azure. So Microsoft had done a lot with um, header tokens in order to make these types of attacks very difficult to, ex- to exploit against their metadata service. Um, it's pointing out that GCP had also recently made some changes and then AWS catching up just within the last week or so about the same. Um, but what's interesting here is that they're still just in this talking about more of that responsibility for where the security lies and what who needs to do what is that all these service providers protecting their metadata service is a good thing. But what they're doing is they're targeting and weakening the exploit or how SSRF is exploited. They're not actually fixing the problem. And this is a lot like the content security policy headers that aren't really fixing cross-site scripting. They're just saying, if you had a cross-site scripting flaw or vulnerability in your application, this will make it a lot more difficult to exploit, a lot less impactful, which is still a good thing, but it still means you've got code to fix. So even if we're talking about, Azure, GCP, now AWS, you know, quote unquote, fixing or hardening, I think is probably the better way to say it. Their metadata service, you as the application developers still have some code to fix and make sure those SSRF vulnerabilities don't get there in the first place.
2: Yeah. In the case of this Jiro bug, it it requires you to do some basic patching uh, of your system still, right? I mean, sometimes this isn't just a code fix it's an infrastructure component fix it could be you know patching your software patching your systems so you know these things still exist out there so marson make sure that our new jira instance is not susceptible (laughs) to the cve 2019
0: 845-1 yeah you've had since august so we'll just this this will be the polite reminder to uh, yeah please double check that patching because um there are bots out there scanning for this and, um, you know, this talks about like we talked about bug bounties and people looking for this. This is one of the easiest ways to earn, especially with an SSRF that can hit a metadata service. I'm going to guess that's at a minimum a $1,000 type of bounty, possibly even $5,000, depending on um, you know what, what information gets revealed out of that metadata service or what you could pivot to from that SSRF. Um, which actually, and I was double checking my notes, the other thing I wanted to mention from, and I'm, so I'm going to completely derail us, bring us back to the very first article we were talking about um, with those SDKs and bug bounties is that one of the things that was interesting in that article was that the um, it was security researchers that brought this to the attention of Facebook and Twitter in this case. And I know Facebook and I believe Google has as well have started to pilot um, bounty programs for more privacy related Uh, bounty programs basically saying let us know if if an app is violating our terms of service or an app is doing something that is that that doesn't look like it is working or it's working as we intended our apis to be consumed um so before i forgot i just wanted to throw that out there as an interesting use of the bug bounty model for data privacy as opposed to just security Um, but now that everyone has um, lost track, I'll try to bring us back, Matt, with this final um, article about DevOps, DevSecOps adoption and the, the, the web security myth. And um, it's a little bit of just pointing out, too, the idea that there's a lot of legacy uh, code, a lot of legacy apps out there. And DevSecOps, just saying DevSecOps or saying you have DevSecOps practices doesn't you know, immediately solve everything. And um, you still, just as we were saying now in that SSRF example in Jira, you probably still have to patch something. You still have to fix some code. So you can't rely on the cloud and cloud native solutions to um, solve a lot of these problems. They definitely make the solutions a lot more easy. They make solutions a lot um, more consumable because they're API driven. So you can actually write code to manage a lot of this, but um, not everybody is into the cloud. And so there are a lot of things that people need to do to address those legacy applications. Yeah, this article spends a lot of time talking about
2: appliances. Okay, I get it. Appliances yeah. don't really scale to the cloud. I get that. The be- the, what I think the better line in here is, is that organizations which are still using older security technologies should re- re- reevaluate this decision. Not only technologies, but approaches. DevSecOps is going to change the way we think about how do we protect code going forward. We have always been a very, um, from a security perspective, we've always kind of tried to wrap security around an application. Uh, I think DevSecOps gives us the opportunity to embed security in the application. And there's a lot of legacy approaches that are trying to be applied to cloud native technologies in the cloud, in the DevSecOps model, just like the appliance they don't necessarily work in this new model. So reevaluation, not only of some of your solutions, but some of these approaches, I think are gonna be very important for this concept of DevSecOps to really be successful. It requires a lot of integration to a pipeline, which requires a lot of API integration along that pipeline. And it's going to require, I think, new solutions that you're not used to using, um, and, and so I think there's a broader discussion here to have. Uh, I think the reevaluation is very valid. I just would not limit this to the appliance component that this article talks about because there's a whole lot of other stuff that I think has to be reevaluated uh,
0: during this transformation as well. Yeah, I think that's, that's a great point that the, the appliance here is really just a one small example of uh, what you were describing about you know DevOps in the sense of... An appliance doesn't scale as easy because it's a lot harder to go and plug in and flip switches on all of these. And now with DevOps, you know the word, the idea there is that the people running the system are also potentially the people that that built it, um, or that at least can interact with it. And so, if set aside the idea of appliance, if your solution. Isn't API driven? If your solution has, doesn't interact with others, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't play well with others. It doesn't have a, a good authentication model for users, um, and, and so on. Then it's it, or it doesn't plug into your deployment pipeline as well. Um, then it's going to fall out of favor, and that is that idea of what you were. I think just I'm trying to 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 build up your point that um, you know modern design is working on what makes it more pleasant to work with what makes it easier to use as well as easier to manage um throughout the life cycle of this application this product or this solution you know throughout whatever synonym you want and that's where um you know a good DevSecOps approach starts to pick up and a way to shift that mentality of what is being created here by um by a particular enterprise or business yeah exactly right uh, i mean the appliance
2: definitely has its limitations but so do a whole lot of other solutions that don't want that don't have the available APIs or the integration needed to actually succeed in this model and those are all the things that have to be reevaluated as part of these decisions
0: yeah, and I think we heard a little bit from Sandy, was pointing out that you know a lot of old appliance WAF vendors have moved to where their customers are, which means move to the Cloud. So how do you provide solutions that work with where the customers are, rather than bringing the customers into your own pr- prescribed architecture? And her other point was, what are the actual problems that customers have? So yes, the OWASP top 10 is still relevant to a degree, Um, I'll argue, though, that if you're writing your front end in React.js that you have a lot less to worry about with cross-site scripting but now you have a lot more to worry about with bots and fraud, especially for e-commerce or, you know, I love going to concerts and buying tickets and I'd rather go to a concert with a lot of other people that wanted to be there um, than a whole bunch of bots and people who are just trying to scalp and, um, you know, make money who aren't the artists off of those ticket sales. Um, so yeah, yeah so I don't I think, think I don't think good examples.
2: Yeah, I don't think bots party as hard as humans, actually.
0: <laughs> no, I don't think so. So I, I think that's that, that's a good note to end on that, that humans still party, but harder than the bots do. And hopefully humans enjoy this. Um, enjoy application security weekly more than the bots do. So thank you, Matt. Thanks, everyone for joining us. We'll see you next week on application security weekly.